You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 224 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. As you can hear, I'm in a very sacred, ethereal, eternal and mysterious space right now. And I want to be here because it's the last Sunday of the month. And we are going to listen to another classic Terence McKenna talk. Now, the space I'm in here speaking is uh, too mysterious, I think. Let's bring it down a bit, like this. Now it sounds like I'm in a smaller space, like in a... A can that contains the divine mystery. Anyway, we're going to listen to another talk by Terence McKenna. And this talk I've edited because I wanted to tighten it up uh, in order to remove sections that I've already played in other episodes. And that is for your listening pleasure. I'm trying to keep it fresh for you. Yes, so Terence begins this talk discussing the invention of electricity and the war against Christianity that the scientific community... Wait, 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 wait. Uh... Terence begins this talk discussing the invention of electricity and the war against Christianity that the scientific community waged, especially those that were proponents of the theory of evolution. Yes, they waged a war against Christianity. How dare they? From there on, Terence, as usual, tumbles down the rabbit hole, finishing with some thoughts about love. Isn't that nice? I love when Terence talks about love. Anyway, enough rambling from me. Here's Terence. The alchemical dreams of the 16th century, of the Philosopher's Stone and all that, never really died. Instead, the triumph of secular secularism and so-called modern science, post-Newtonian science, pushed the, the dream somewhat into the background. But after... Um, James Clerk Maxwell and Helmholtz and those people discovered the electromagnetic fields in the 1870s. Uh, I mean, we are totally intellectually at home with the idea of electromagnetic radiation. We don't see what an occult thing it must have seemed to the 19th century, where they had just risen to the place where they conceived everything mechanically, Hard objects whizzing through space, force, angular momentum, conservation of energy. Well, then comes Helmholtz and Clerk Maxwell and these people, and they say, oh no, there's a diffuse, invisible, vibratory medium that extends throughout all space. And just, you know, complete occult uh, kind of vocabulary. Well, that has now, because it could be formalized 
through uh, the uh, uh, Maxwell's equations for magnetic radiation, somehow the occult side of it dropped away. For us, that's how you take the magic out of something, is you stride to the blackboard and write a tensor equation of the third degree, and then somehow you have it. So these fields became very mundane and could be used for radio and television and so forth. It took someone like Marshall McLuhan to point out that the Christian program for the entry of God into history reaches uh, the uh, period of the intercession of the Holy Ghost once Marconi throws the switch. That the electrical web of noetic information, the instantaneous transformations of the global logos, this is the age of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, it's a funny thing how effects in nature can be drawn forward and concentrated. For thousands and thousands of years, electricity was understood to be that thing that you see when you take a uh, cat skin into a darkened room with an amber rod and rub it rub the cat fur with the amber rod and then as you stroke it in the darkness you see static electrical discharge through the cat fur and this was known since Hellenistic times it was a magic show demonstration but it took the concrescence of novelty the descent of the Holy Ghost into history to draw the crackle out of the cat fur and set it as an envelope around the planet transducing the information that knits together the dominant species well how many things lie about us present at hand uh, ready to be uh, somehow reconfigured in some uh, salutary or salvific uh, way. One of the things, one of the insights that I had from all the fiddling with shamanism in the Amazon was that <clears throat> everything can be simple. If things aren't simple, we haven't thought about it long enough. <laughs> That's why I like that population idea yesterday because there may be a yet simpler idea than that but that really gives me hope because if you don't have a simple idea you can be pretty sure you don't have the solution the solution is going to have to be pretty simple and straightforward because it's going to have to be executed by the combined uh, commitment of millions and millions of people and I don't think most modern people realize this about evolution in the 19th century. These guys, like Darwin and Thomas Henry Huxley and Charles Lyell, they were uh, waging war against Christianity. They were the great warriors of atheism. And the way it worked, the way atheism was waged intellectually in the 19th century was it took the form of a denial of purpose. This is called in theological language teleology. Purpose is telos. And a huge amount of the intellectual energy of science in the 19th century was put toward showing that there is no purpose, no end state that 
see, many people think of it, when they think of evolution, they think of higher and higher ascents towards some kind of ideal. No biologist, biologists curl their lip at this interpretation. A biologist believes that you have random mutation, random, colliding with selective pressures in the environment, and out of that you get a best fit, and that best fit is maintained and passed forward in time. But it was absolutely anathema to the 19th century scientists to suppose that there could be, you must never speak of purpose, you must never speak of goal, you must never speak of an arrow toward an end point. They said, no, no, it's much more a a random walk. You know, in Hamlet where he says, uh, it's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's precisely the position of 19th century biology on what biology is about. Well, the problem there is that theory of evolution works very well when you're looking at the uh, evolution of species, uh, evolution of one ladybug, you know, the plain orange ladybug into the lady, the conspecific nearby species with black spots. This all works very well. But what it doesn't explain is the emergence of the phyla, the great forces that pulled forward the phyla. The other thing it doesn't explain are phenomena like metamorphosis, for instance, in insects. If evolution proceeds out of uh, random mutation working against natural selection, well then a process like metamorphosis where thousands of genes have to be coordinated perfectly with one another to take a worm and transform it into a winged flying creature with a sexual potential. I mean, thousands of genes are coordinated to do this. Well, how can you imagine any random evolutionary event that would give you a halfway point in metamorphosis? It's either all or nothing. So Wallace, looking at the same data that Darwin was looking at, uh, said there must be a telos in nature. And in that sense, he is the founder of the revolution in science that I tried to carry forward last night with the time wave, because this was entirely a theory of telos, of of being drawn toward an omega point. Well, recently, Wallace and my ideas have gotten good support from uh, these frontier areas of mathematics called uh, chaos theory and dynamical systems theory because they deal in a quite rigorous fashion and with no excitement or arm-waving with these things called attractors. And attractors are actually um, basins 
in the energy topology of a process such that all things in their vicinity are drawn to them. Just as if you imagine you had a flat floor, but then there was a, a steep dip in it somewhere. Well, when you swept this floor, you would discover all the dirt in the bottom of the dip because that's the minimum energy state for the system. I think that history is uh, the, the great um, test for all of this new mathematics and holistic thinking and generalized metaphor making. It's one thing to predict the course of a stock market or the uh, fluctuation of an ecosystem, but if our mathematical models are good for anything, then they should be good for modeling the matrix in which we find ourselves. So what we looked at last night was just like our entry into the soapbox derby of historical modeling, which is now going on at quite a furious rate because uh, planning is very, very important. I mean, we have to make some very important moves in the next 30 years. The wrong move will checkmate us. I mean, this is a heart-in-your-throat kind of situation. We need to study the board very carefully you know, just one more wrong move and uh, there could be a cascade of some sort in one of the many critically poised uh, domains that threaten us that we would not then be able to reverse. Oh, I think we could definitely make mm-hmm. a wrong move. It's easy to imagine wrong moves. I mean, here's a wrong move use white phosphorus bombs to torch the oil sands in Saudi Arabia so that you get a nuclear winter without a nuclear war. That would be a wrong move. Uh, You know, cease to resist the spread of infectious disease. Uh, Nuclear proliferation. Now, so far, we've shown a remarkable ability to locate and make wrong moves. The banking system, the the role between men and women, the stuff we were talking about yesterday, how much resources should be committed to space, how much to feeding the starving, how much... uh, It's an energy problem. We actually have a finite amount of energy, and we are in a box And we need to calculate, you know, how many paths are there out of the box? How much do they cost? How long do they take? And who eats it in each deal? Because it's very hard to find a way out where somebody doesn't eat it. I mean, uh, that's why I was so fascinated that the mushroom could offer a uh, instantaneously offer what seemed to be a fairly humane, non-coercive, non-invasive, and extremely cogent and bare-knuckles uh, suggestion as to how we might solve our problems. I mean, you could commission three UN studies and not get that much plain talk. Books to read. Well, I always recommend, because it's easy to get and, and very good, dense information. That book called Hallucinogens and Shamanism, edited by Michael Harner from Oxford University Press. 
and then you know there's a plethora of of publishing i i it's so natural to me that i almost forget to say it but uh uh if you're interested in this kind of thing, your first stop has got to be the library. You know, you have to educate yourself because this is the most lied-about area of human relations. I mean, it's out there with transsexuality and stuff like that. I mean, it's an extremely misrepresented, misunderstood, hated, feared, loathed, and uh, an attacked place. So you have to learn the players and the positions and how to read this pharmaceutical literature. The real data is in journals. I mean, there are scientific guilds and brotherhoods where all this information moves around fairly freely. In fact, Esselin over the years has played host many times to the high priests, uh, the chemists, and the, and the psychotherapists, and uh, people like that are making it happen. So, but it's all in journals. Very little of it gets behind hard cover. I don't know the, the details. I can't quite yet see clearly how it's going to work. But I think that we are preparing our own new world. And it's a new world in the imagination. The imagination is, a, is real estate. You know, this thing that my mother taught me, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride... That's the program of psychedelic crypto-anarchy. We want wishes to be horses. The beggars shall ride. And that's why I gave a certain amount of energy to virtual reality. I'm trying to figure out where is this doorway into this other place. Because there is another place. I mean, that's what DMT teaches you incontrovertibly I guess that's the real shocker hush my mouth and blow me away there's another there's some there's a parallel world not light years and centuries away but right here (laughs) and it's not you know the Pentagon isn't investigating it you're investigating it and uh, uh, sure and this parallel world when you break into this elf infested space there is such love such affection for humanity that you know it moves you to tears I mean why do these alien things care so much who are they what are they I mean one of the ideas that I've been pushed toward recently and uh, I don't know why it took me so long to get around to this, but my therapist could probably tell you. Uh, If you were to go to uh, shamans in the Amazon or the hills of New Guinea or somewhere and and say, describe the DMT thing and ask, what's going on here? What's this about? Without hesitation, I think, most shamans shamans would just say, oh, well, uh, those are the ancestors. So that's the bit with us shamans. We we contact the ancestors and then we cure and find lost objects. Well, this is, uh, in all the the psychedelic voyaging I did, I never really entertained the possibility that with all this boundary dissolving we were going to do, that we were going to actually flirt with dissolving the boundary between life and death itself. Is it possible 
that there is some kind of ecology of souls over yonder? Is it possible that the 100,000-year-old claim of shamans that they can pass from here to there and back again is so? This... I mean, we feel so weird about death that we don't know how exactly to look at this. But if we are conservative in our hunt for the source of the alien voice and the steering mechanism of history, if we're conservative in our search for the source of that, we shouldn't reach to the conclusion that uh, Galactarians from, uh, uh, you know, Zanebel Ganubi are in charge of things. It's far more likely that, you know, our dead ancestors are in charge of things. After all, after us, they are the only human thing we know. There's nothing else. And uh, the so then when I go in there, I carry this thought with me. Am I in the bardo? You know, is this the way station to the lesser lights? Uh, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The and sometimes I think that what happens at the very center of the DMT flash, the thing that is so mind-boggling that no one has ever retained a memory of it that they could discuss with the gang, is uh, you confront your soul. You somehow meet the double, a la Carlos Castaneda, God forbid. But you actually come up against a being which as you interact with this being, it dawns on you who it is, and it's you. And then, you know, there's some kind of an apotheosis, an apocatastasis, an outbreak of Greek of some sort for sure. And... uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, This... Reality obliterating flash that I'm describing as the sine qua non of psychedelic voyaging, I have a real question in my mind as to whether or not the shamans in the Amazon uh, encounter it very often because it's very hard to concentrate the DMT sufficiently to deliver that much to the synaptic cleft all at once. The brilliant strategy they've worked out is the slow-release oral DMT in the ayahuasca mix. If you make ayahuasca stiff, you can, after an hour and a half of pranayama and breath control and like that, you can work yourself into a place where you say, you know, my God, this does look like a DMT flash. I mean, it's happening more slowly, and you've had more time to get used to it because it's taken you a while to get there. But you can approach that thing. The thing is, uh, people are universally the same, i found. And even among shamans, there's a lot of, number one, bluff and fear. And it's very rare that you meet a real exploring soul 
who is not afraid of it at ultra high doses. So a lot of the shamanism in Peru is vitiated by the need to cure and make money and have a position in the community. And, uh, and also the style in Peru is not to demand visions. Most You meet a lot of people in Peru who have taken ayahuasca who don't have the faintest idea of what is possible. And if you should have occasion to show them or to be involved in seeing them encounter it, then they say, you know, I had no idea. It's a very subtle um, kind of thing. And uh, the snuffs, then, are the other DMT... um, approach and for me the snuffs are so complicated there's a lot of problems with the snuff i think it's an overrated thing number one there's the physical problem of taking it you have a bamboo tube about this long and you load it up with a tablespoon and a half of ground woody toasted seed material well then you sit and your friend sits in front of you you put the tube up your nostril and your friend blows as hard as he can you don't do it because you would restrain yourself too much and it wouldn't work it has to be somebody else it's like pulling a tooth out somebody else has to do it so he blasts this up your nostrils you know it's like being hit in the face with a two by four i mean you you scream you fall over backwards you salivate, you squirm around in the dirt a little bit, and then you sit back up, and by this time, he has reloaded for the other nostril. And then, you know, you go through the whole thing again. Well, then after, and then it comes on, and it is tryptamine-like, and it is, you know, the vision clarifies, and the energy rises, and you're loaded, really loaded. But uh, when you uh, do a chemical analysis on the varola resin, the resin of these myristicaceous trees that are the source of this, uh, it's not a clean source of DMT. There's a lot of junk in there, too. There's not only DMT and 5-MeO-DMT, but there's also alpha-methyltryptamine, monomethyltryptamine, uh, and, and numer- uh, some beta-carbolines. And this is not what you want in a drug, a source drug plant. You want a clean signature. That's why Psychotria viridis is so preferred in the ayahuasca brew, because there's nothing in it but NN-dimethyltryptamine. It's, uh, it's very clean. So those are the sources. And then nowhere else in the world did these tryptamine cults arise. We have no evidence of it ever existing except out through the Caribbean islands and down as far south as the Atacama Desert in Chile. But the the DMT, the tryptamine complex, is entirely new world. If lucid dreaming were can be made to function for everybody, if it's actually real, then probably we can get rid of psychedelics. Uh, well, this is a this is a good place to mention a really interesting thing. I tell most of my groups this because someday I'm going. Uh, some young researcher will hear me and follow this up, but. 
here's an interesting piece of data. If you have smoked DMT at some point in your life, it's possible to have a dream in which the theme of DMT will be introduced and you will smoke it and it will actually completely happen. That is an important piece of evidence because what it shows is the chemical um, material is there, the mechanism is there. How, I mean, that's exciting. Imagine if you could just go into a brainwave pattern or something and begin to call it in. And it doesn't seem so far away if it's happening in the dream. They've done human sleep studies and they know that uh, endogenous production of DMT in the brain peaks around 4 a.m. in most people. Well, this correlates well with the peak REM activity. It means probably that DMT is driving dreaming in some fairly profound way. Dissolving the boundary between waking and sleeping is a classical shamanic technique for entry into the invisible world, either by sleep deprivation or some other way. So, yeah, this is a very good point. Uh, uh, the, The world of sleep and the psychedelic world, the question is why are we constructed so that we can't remember it's so frustrating. I mean, this is our main problem, is the mnemonic problem, both with the drugs and the dreams. Why do we go to worlds of incredible richness and complexity which we cannot remember anything about? It seems a strange statement on the economy of nature, uh, if there is an economy of nature. I was amazed at the state of dream theory. I hadn't paid much attention. About two months ago, there was an article in Scientific American on dreaming. It was the most reductionist. It, it was, they've, they've gone back a hundred years. I mean, basically, they're saying it's mostly undigested pieces of potato. Uh, it was an incredibly, I mean, they threw out all Freudian, all Jungian, all interpretive. Uh, the, 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 what's in vogue now is that it's junk data. Uh, it's the dumping ground, you know, meaningless. Any effort to understand dreams is like going through somebody else's wastebasket. It doesn't make any sense at all. So more denial of the power of, uh, of the unconscious. Orthodox science more and more is simply talking to itself because the bodies of experiences that people are building up in their own lives do not map onto the scientific model. I mean, most people have a very largely irrational component operating in their lives. I mean, we can identify it in each other uh, because we sort of share the same control language. But what about all those people out there in the, in the trailer courts of America who, you know, put your hand on the radio? I mean, this is not a scientific paradigm in action. Uh, this is pure voodoo. Uh, <clears throat> it was William James who said... Uh, if we don't read the books with which we line our apartments, we are no better than our cats and dogs. <laughs> Falling in love is a really interesting phenomenon. I mean, you, 
you can be the guy who marks the tires in the parking lot of the great corporation and one day you see the daughter of the first, second and fourth vice president go by and you fall in love with her. And now watch what happens. Mountains are moved. Coincidences occur. Appointments canceled. Deaths, if necessary, in order to bring you together. And then you get married and are unhappily spend the rest of your life with this woman. <laughs> but in the, in the process of getting together, almost everybody experiences magic. It's almost as though the universal zeitgeist, what it's really interested in is gene matching. It's really interested in who gets horizontal with who with consequence because that's obviously how it steers and sculpts the historical animal. It understands that the pigments of this oil painting are genes and that the landscape is being painted with a genetic, in a genetic medium. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting. seems secure is a, a truth that is hard to hear in the context of a dominator culture with an obsession with the material world. And, and that truth is that nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. You know, your enemies will fade, your friends will fade, your fortune, your poverty, your disappointments, your dreams, everything is in the process of changing into something else. So your agony is about to be assuaged. On the other hand, your happiness is about to be destroyed. So the, the obligation that comes out of this realization is an obligation to the, the immediate moment to this thing that I've been calling the felt moment of immediate experience. It isn't who you were or what you were or who you will be or what you will be. It's the felt moment of immediate experience. And this has been robbed from us by media and by our tendency to denigrate ourselves to see the world in terms of the great ones not here whoever they are aristotle madonna jesus whatever your particular bent is uh, the overcoming of neurosis of unhappiness of toxic lifestyles is uh, the felt presence of immediate experience in the body in the moment and you know psychedelics sexuality gastronomy sport dance these are the things which put you in the felt presence of the moment and that's really all you ever possess your memories are eroding away the futures you anticipate will mostly not come 
to pass, and the real uh, richness is in the moment, and it's not necessarily some kind of be here now, feel good thing, because it doesn't always feel good, but it always feels. It is a domain of feeling. It's primary. Language is not primary. Ideology is not primary. The propagation of future and past vectors is not primary. What's primary is the felt presence of experience, and that is the source of love. This talk was lifted from the psychedelicsalon.com. Now Terence talked a bit about dreams, and I have this theory, this model, that perhaps reality, our waking state, is the dream. Where I am now, that's the dream. And the dream when I go to bed is reality. Now science says we need to dream in order to feel good when we're awake. But what if... We should feel good when awake so that we can dream more peacefully. Maybe it's the other way around. Perhaps the system is rigged in the opposite direction. Something worthy to consider at least. Okay, we promised you a surprise at the end of the hour. This is something that is uh, not only just a necessity in our homes in this day and age. It's something that many of us don't even realize exists. I mean, there's so much that's going on that's that's scary and unfortunate, but it's a, a side effect of this new tech-savvy lifestyle that we all live. Here's the reason why this is a big deal tonight. If you want to support the podcast, join us over at patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemists. Uh, All we'd ask is that you leave a review. The sooner we get this back in, the better. It's a phenomenal brand, a phenomenal product, which is really helping to solve a problem that I think many of us, most of us know is there, but we don't know what to do about it. We never even knew that such a product existed. I do hope you can become a Patreon. It does help a lot. There are links to Patreon on naturalalchemist.com, so it's very easy for you to click your way there. For only a couple of bucks a month, it's not much to ask for, I think. You can support the podcast. That is less than one dollar per show. Yeah, let's end with the song Human Again by Sam Quick from the album The Way Forward. Go to samquick.bandcamp.com if you like what you hear. I'll try to be more normal for the next episode, or maybe not. We'll see. Freedom is in the mind. <laughs>